but uh, it's really, really good to see all of you here. And today, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment. We've been doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and we're making that final turn headed to the finish line as we do the Ninth Commandment this week and the Tenth next week. But today, we're going to talk about truthfulness. Truthfulness. You know, and this, in one sense, seems like one of the hardest ones, maybe one of the hardest commands to keep, because it seems just not that important compared to don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. But we know something. Our words are powerful. And God is saying his people are meant to be truthful, and this should not be overlooked or treated with a very casual attitude. So let's give our attention to the reading of his word. Our reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 20 and Zechariah 8. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the prophet says, These are the things that you shall do speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that this morning that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let our hearts be tender before you because every single one of us needs to be healed. Our hearts need to be healed. Our tongue needs to be healed. And this can only happen as you do something in us. And we ask, Lord, that you would meet us, transform us, because we want the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing to you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The cover of the June 2017 National Geographic magazine had this uh, engaging title, Why We Lie, the science behind our complicated relationship with the truth. Now, that got my attention as a pastor, and one of the stories they had in there discussing truth-telling and lying was this, because in the fall of 1989, Princeton University welcomed into its freshman class, a young man named Alexei Santana, whose life story was just so compelling, extraordinary. The admissions committee was so high on him, he was brought in kind of as a celebrity. Celebrity, excuse me. And what made him very unique was he had barely any kind of formal schooling. He spent his adolescence entirely on his own, outdoors in Utah, where he herded cattle, raised sheep, and read philosophy. You know, it's like so cool. And he was a runner in the Mojave Desert where he trained himself to be a distance runner. Now, this guy became some sort of celebrity on campus, and he was just one problem. Santana's whole story about his life was a lie. They eventually learned his name was actually James Hogue, 31-year-old who had served a prison sentence in Utah 
for possession of tools and bike parts which he had stolen, and he was actually taken away from campus in handcuffs. That's kind of embarrassing for, I think, the admissions department there. Now, the, the, the article goes on to say, the history of humankind is strewn with crafty and seasoned liars like this man. You know, whether it's the Bernie Madoffs, the Richard Nixons, or scientists like Jan Hendrik Schoen. Apparently, he purported a breakthrough in molecular semiconductor research, which was all fraudulent. And it ends with this. It says, lying, it turns out, is something that most of us are very adept at. We lie with ease in ways big and small to strangers, coworkers, friends, and loved ones. Our capacity for dishonesty is as fundamental to us as our need to trust others, which ironically makes us terrible at detecting lies. Being deceitful is woven into our very fabric. Deceitfulness is woven into our very fabric. The ninth commandment is speaking about this. It's speaking about our words, our speech, because we call false words, false testimony, false witness, all of those things are lies. I mean, this is why this commandment has traditionally focused on our words. And we all know our words matter. Everyone, I think in this room, has heard words that has given you life, Right? We've all heard those words that have kicked us in the stomach and we couldn't sleep at night. And you couldn't get those words out of your mind. Some of you have been victims of slander. Um, Your good name sullied. You know, when I think of middle school drama, how much of that is about words, you know? Ben, we pray for you as our teen director as you deal with this and teens. Others have spread false words about others, knowingly and mistakenly, and you carry much guilt and shame, right, over it because of the hurt you cause. And we know our words matter, and God says, my people, people who know me, are to be marked by truthfulness. Truthfulness. You know, and on the surface, this ninth commandment says, do no harm to your neighbor with your tongue, and it addresses a very specific issue, doesn't it, in a, in a court of law. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that may sound like an odd way of saying don't lie, but the phrase comes from the context of the original Jewish legal system. Because legal cases were often decided on the evidence of witnesses, as much is the case today. They didn't have forensic science back then, fingerprinting, DNA, you know, to aid in investigation. This was not like a British crime show in those days. So witnesses, very, very important. And justice itself often depended on the truthfulness of a witness. This is why the testimony of a false witness could be actually fatal. And people understood. Even then, people can come make false accusations. So this is why you needed two or three witnesses, according to Deuteronomy 17, to corroborate a crime. Incidentally, it is also why in capital crimes, the accuser, the accusing witness, had to cast the first stone. Now, 
So you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which means tell the truth. We are not to do harm to our neighbor with our words. Hey, it's one thing to misrepresent ourselves or our credentials, but a lie told about another has a ripple effect that impacts the health of a community. Truthfulness is a commitment to representing rightly our neighbor, to honor the good name of our neighbor. And this is much more than just being honest people. I mean, don't you want this for yourself? Let me ask you that first. Don't you want people to treat you in this way? You know, always give you the benefit of the doubt. Speak truthfully about you. Because truth-telling seems to be something that's not very unique just to Christianity because every religion, you know, you can go back to other philosophers like Kant, they would all agree, you know, truthfulness is good for society and important. But for God's people, this is not meant to be an abstraction, but a way of life because God calls his people to love our neighbors as ourselves, and it begins with our words. You know, it's not just in the Old Testament, by the way, this is the case, because this law is transposed in the New Testament with greater specificity. Actually, as I was going through the scriptures this week preparing for this, like the volume that the Bible has, the verses about speech in particular, it's actually a bit overwhelming. I had a hard time picking out what, is some, what are some other passages to go along with this idea of thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. There were so many volumes of it that I had a hard time picking. But, you know, in the New Testament, one of the places that I want to draw your attention to is actually Colossians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul takes this a step further. Because, again, God is interested in much more than us being just honest people. He's telling his people that if you've been redeemed by Jesus and the gospel... Okay, We are to live in a way that was distinctive. Distinctive to who we were before we came to know Christ. And this is how he puts it in verse 8 of Colossians 3. But now you must put away, put them all away. Now you must put them all away. And he gives this list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. By the way, the obscene talk is meant divisive talk, things that create division among you. And he goes on to say, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. He says, now put them all away. He's referring to the salvation people have received in Christ. You are meant to become a new community, a new person. You know, and it begins to echo all of these things in Exodus where God has said, Hey, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. I am making you my people. And you are to be marked by a very distinctive character. And here he goes on to talk about again words. Words which should be bringing healing. And building up, we are meant to be a people for each other and not to tear people down through our words. 
You know, Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And how do we harm our neighbors with our words? How do we do this? Because in verse 9 of this passage, it says, do not lie to one another. Zechariah 8 says, speak truth to one another. But when we lie, deceive, mislead, and disingenuous, we harm our neighbor. Years ago, I got a call from a pastor friend of mine um, who wanted some advice. He had a ministry intern who called in sick with a text on Sunday. He says, man, I, I can't make it, just not well. So he texted back, hey, I'm sorry. Hope you feel better soon. Don't worry about it. We got everything covered. But this intern recently introduced a pastor to this thing called Facebook. And he befriended him. And later in the day, my friend saw some pictures that came up on his feed. Here was his intern tagged in some photos at the beach with friends earlier in the day. So he knew he had to have a conversation with this intern about lying. And he wanted to know, what would you do if you were in my shoes? Well, I said, well, first, this intern should be called out for being a dummy for getting his photos on Facebook after telling a lie, okay? That's like maybe number one, we can start there. Not wise, all right? But he, but he said, seriously, what should I do? Because do I fire this guy, this girl, whatever? You know, he eventually had to, but you know why he said, you know, the issue was after we talked... It wasn't for lying, but it was actually for not repenting, which was another lie to cover up the original lie. He said trust was broken. What are some of the lies we tell when we don't do what we say we will? How oftentimes do we say, I took care of it, and then we run off to take care of whatever you didn't hoping you don't get caught. Or you say, oh, I was busy. I forgot. Another false excuse so you don't have to take the blame. We lie in order to protect our reputation, don't we? Because we're trying to protect ourselves. We want to seem a certain way and put on a certain facade. Spiritual hypocrisy is a way of lying. I will pray for you. How often do we say that and we never actually do? How do we do when we misuse our tongue and we actually say everything is great, nothing is wrong in my life, and we put up this facade when we know deeply inside of us there is so much wrong and we need help, but we want other people to think otherwise. We want to hide. We want to protect our reputation, so we lie. How about this one? Lies to control. One of the ones that came up quite a bit as I was looking through the scriptures was flattery. Think about flattery for a second. Jen Wilkin, in her book, Ten Words, puts a real fine point on this. She says, when is a compliment not a compliment? When it is offered to cajole or control. You know what flattery does? It misrepresents by building someone up. It's manipulation, masses, praise. Often, 
employed to artificially enhance trust or secure a favor. And the Bible says a great deal about flattery, and it is never, ever positive. It is lying. You're saying something positive that you don't really believe to be true in order to control and manipulate, gain influence. There is something so disingenuous about all of this. God talks about it as evil and duplicitous. All the nice talk, you know? Lies to control. That one is not one that pops up so often in our minds, but it's there. And then all the other words that are usually mockery, sarcasm, all the reviling that Colossians chapter 3 verse 8 talks about as anger, wrath, malice, slander, harsh, abusive language, insult, criticize, half-truths to hurt. Why do we do this? You know, what you say, what you and I say can be partly true, but when it is overly harsh, meant to diminish someone and insult, to a degree, who cares if it's actually true? Because truth without love is neither loving nor truthful because you are using your words for a purpose other than what God intends. And I think we all know what, we're ta- what I'm talking about here because the motives of our hearts are exposed. We're out to harm with our words, not bless. And the same with gossip, right? Well, it's not gossip because it's true. But it doesn't mean it's not been weaponized to harm. And slander. Uh, Believing the worst about someone without evidence and representing it as true. Exodus 23.1, you shall not spread a false report. You are responsible to check the facts and the accuracy, you know? But we, oh, this sounds pretty good. Wow, it's so, like, uh, explosive. Pass on the fake news. We just pass it on. Leviticus 19.16, you shall not go around as slanderer among your people. All of these things, you know why it's so hard? It's not just about being good people or bad people. It's saying this harms your neighbor. The people you are with. We misuse our tongue sometimes when we sow discord or dissension. Proverbs 6 says this, there are six things the Lord's hate, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. Uh, These are hard words. We misuse our tongue when we often just go on complaining and complaining. Have you guys heard of the story of the monk who couldn't control his tongue, so he went to a monastery that required silence? And you got to speak every seven years. So after seven years, he said two words. Food's bad. (laughs) Seven years later, he said, the bed's hard. Seven years later, 21 years, he said, I quit. So the abbot said, no wonder you're quitting because all you've done is complain since you got here. (laughs) 
He didn't have to say a whole lot. I guess maybe it was written on his face. You know, and you guys get the idea. You know, when we are quick with our words, injudicious with our words, harsh, we are violating the ninth commandment. Because you know why? Words are powerful and we know it. Some of the hardest things and the things that have wounded us most have been words we have heard. I hate you. I never loved you. You're stupid. You'll never amount to anything. You're ugly. I mean, anything that has stuck in your mind, I'm going to guess for the most part, they've been words. Words have the power to take, to steal from us, to tear us down, to scar us. And God is saying, I want my people to use their words truthfully in order to build up. You know, we say death and life are in the power of the tongue. Actually, Proverbs 18 says that. It's not just that we should refrain from trying to harm our neighbors with our words, but we actually have a responsibility to speak truth in a way that builds up. And you know why? You know why this is unique to Christianity is because truth actually matters to God, it says, because God himself is truth. You see, this lines up with his character, as does each of the Ten Commandments. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says, God never lies. He's the one person who will never, ever lie to us. Hebrews 6 says the same thing. It is impossible for God to lie. And we know that Jesus himself is the way and the truth and the life. He is truth. God is unchanging and true. We can utterly depend on him. We can depend on him to tell the truth about us and our world. And on the other side of this, we have Satan. Satan, whose name in Hebrew actually means accuser. The Bible tells us he is what? A liar. This is his chief characteristic. He deceives and twists the truth. This is what Satan does. 2 Corinthians 11.4 tells us he masquerades as light. See? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 says the works of Satan are displayed in counterfeit miracles. Again, counterfeit, fake, lies. And John 8, Jesus says this to his accusers about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. And has nothing to do with the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, lies and deception are at the core of what distinguishes not only good from evil. But actually from God and Satan. A community of God versus a community that is built apart from God. And God's people are to embody the character of God. Deception, lying, this is what it is. I mean, sure, you can have technically accurate ways of talking about something. But there has to be in it something that is meant to not only tell the truth, but build up to bring to reality truth. You can even talk about things truthfully without love in a way that doesn't honor God. 
And what the scriptures tell us is that God is true and what he reveals about himself is true. And he calls his people to be truthful just like him. We're to put away our old selves and put on the new. And that includes being truthful. And when we speak the truth in love, there is power that builds, renews, refreshes our souls. It's a little bit of heaven brought out into our world, into our marriage and our families, our friendships and our workplace when truth is brought forth. That means we affirm others and we use words to give hope, courage, assurance. We promote the best possible opinion of others. And we go out and defend the motive of others. You know, years ago I heard this story of a very famous African-American pastor named Evie Hill. He was a pastor in Los Angeles for years and years and years and was very prominent, especially in the 80s. And he actually pastored one of the largest churches in this country. But when his wife died of cancer, he preached at his funeral. And he said, this is what I want people to know about his, my wife. He said, she was the daughter of a very prominent man who was the head of a very large southern university. And she grew up living in a mansion on campus. She had never known any financial hardship. She was actually engaged to someone from another very prominent and successful family and eventually ended up marrying Evie Hill, a pastor. She was on the course of living a very comfortable life, and now she was with a pastor. So when they got married, they didn't have a whole lot. He was starting out in ministry, and they were struggling, and things weren't going well. And he said he came home one day, exhausted, and his wife had a candlelight dinner on the table. And she said, honey, I know how hard you've been working, and I'm just so proud of you. I just want us to share a candlelight dinner. And he was like, wow, my wife is so thoughtful. She's an amazing woman. He goes to the bathroom to wash his hands and flips on the light, and the lights then come on. And he realized the lights then come on because they didn't have the money to pay the power bill, so it got turned off. And here's this woman, he said, who had known no financial hardship in her life, put herself in his care, and he couldn't even make enough money to pay the electric bill. And when he came home, she didn't say, what kind of loser are you? Look at my life because of you. She said, let's eat by the candlelight tonight. He said, you know, she could have ruined me as a man. Instead, she said, how about a candlelight dinner? Powerful words because it said everything. It was true. It pointed to and hinted at things. But she wanted to build him up, encourage him. You know, our words are also healing when we learn how to confess and agree with what God tells us about ourselves. You know why? This is why we actually have confession in our worship service every single week. The Greek word homologeo, which means to agree with, that's what confessing is. We're people who say, God, 
You see us as we are. We're not here to lie. We are here to speak truth about ourselves, that we are broken people living in a broken world. And what we need is Jesus to come heal us and forgive us and renew us because I don't know how else my heart can be healed and my tongue can be healed. We come wanting to speak humbly, to say, I'm, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And when we confess, when we repent to one another, when we say, I am so sorry, will you forgive me? I have hurt you. I said things I shouldn't have. I was harsh. Sometimes people ask me, uh, since I have a daughter in college, what should I do as a parent? What are some good things I should do because I have a young child? And the one thing I always tell everybody is, look, more than anything else, when you are wrong, I encourage you to go to your child when you have wronged them and tell them, Daddy is sorry, Mommy is sorry, because I have sinned, will you forgive me? And when your kids see you saying that to each other as a couple, they see, hey, life is hard. We will sin. We will hurt each other. But you know what happens? We have something that allows us to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. We can address this. We can deal with this in a way that is healthy and good. We can experience God's love. We can have words that heal. Healing words spoken in our family. Because undoubtedly, we're going to hurt each other. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to wrong each other. When God is saying we are to be truthful people, these are the things he's hoping to see in our families, in our neighborhoods, our friendships, our lives with our coworkers. Now, the question is, how do you do this? Because I think this is the real hard part of this. How do we redeem our words? Because just changing it, just for the sake of changing it, doesn't seem to go very well or for very long. Because the source of the problem is much more than just controlling our tongue. It's not increasing our vocabulary and picking up a few little tidbits or tricks. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, our words actually reveal our hearts. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasures brings good forth good, and the evil, evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is saying, for out of the abundance of your heart, our mouth speaks. You know why we have a hard time being truthful? Because of our hearts. You know why we have a hard time saying kind things? It's because of our hearts. You know why we're flatterers and trying to manipulate people through flattery? It's because of our hearts. Our words reveal who we are. Our hearts are laid bare. Just listen to people and you will see what where their hearts settle. And Jesus is saying, 
this is who we are. But he says, you know what? I have a solution. I have a solution. Because he is saying, do you understand? You cannot fix your own heart. But I have actually come to fix your heart. All of us, I often talk about uh, feeling, feeling like we need to prove ourselves. That we are in some ways some cosmic orphan. Feeling like we never get recognized. Never are loved enough. Never ever get the praise we need. And you know what? One of the things the gospel continues to always tell us is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh, became vulnerable, experienced the worst kind of reviling. And First Peter chapter 2 said he kept quiet in the midst of all these false accusations in order to go to the cross, to die a death on the cross. Why? To take away all that's in our heart. All the things that are vile and hard and angry and hurt that leads to deceit, lies, criticism, trying to tear people down, the gossip, the divisiveness, all of that, he's saying, I am here to take it away. And the way you know is because what Jesus has done starts to be a balm on our hearts in such a way that you think about Jesus himself, the word that became flesh, who has drawn near to us, who whispers to us all the time, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are precious in my sight. You, I have died for you. And when you begin to understand this, and you begin to understand him saying, forgive as I have forgiven you. Let go of the anger. Let go of the malice. Let go of the harshness because Jesus himself is saying, hey, don't forget how I have loved you and treated you. Not with harshness. Not with gossip. Not with mocking. But with love. Because love, my friends, covers over a multitude of sins. You know, Bonhoeffer said this, only those who follow Jesus can live in complete truthfulness. Complete truthfulness is only possible when sin has been uncovered and forgiven by Jesus. He's saying the cross is the truth about us. God is saying, you want to know the truth about you and me? Look at the cross. And that's the power that begins to heal us. And we're no longer afraid of speaking the truth. Friends, let me leave you with this last word. Jem Wilkins in her book, Ten Words to Live By. She says, every time we choose to speak truthful words, encouraging words, life-giving words about and to our neighbor, we invite heaven down to earth. Think about that. Imagine if this was a community where that was taking place. Imagine if your workplace was a place that did just that, or your family, or your school. That is transformative. That is beautiful. 
And I pray that God would make us into a community of truthfulness. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we uh, ask that this morning that your spirit would come and allow your word to dwell richly in our hearts. That we would be reminded of what our Lord Jesus did. He took away all of these things in our hearts, the darkness of the anger, the source of our harsh words and deception, and gave us a new identity that says we are now children of the Savior, children of the God, a God who is truth. And we ask that, Father, you would give us the courage to be people of truth, that you would allow us to be tender-hearted so that we can represent truth with kindness and with love, so that by our lives, people would see the beauty of who you are. Father, would you do that in our community? Would you heal us? Would you allow us to experience the beauty of this today? And we pray these things, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.